0: You're listening to episode 280 of the Room to Grow podcast. I'm Emily Goff, a human connection coach, speaker, and mental health advocate with an insatiable sense of curiosity and adventure, always asking more questions and using the power of stories to teach, learn, and grow. It's about allowing for room to grow. And this podcast focuses on three main pillars, human connection, personal growth, and freedom. We cover topics like relationships and cultivating genuine supportive connections with ourselves and others, speaking your truth, shattering personal barriers, radical self-acceptance, and courageously leaning into your skill sets. Whether it's a solo episode or bringing on highly curated guests with incredible stories, experiences, and expertise to share, we're leaning in and taking the entire idea of growth to the next level, all while still covering the uncomfortable topics that many of us like to avoid. There's always more room to grow let's do this. Hey, hey, welcome back to the Room to Grow podcast. And today's guest is so special and rapidly becoming one of my favorite humans. We're talking to Traver Boehm again today. So this is actually part two, basically of uh, Traver was back on episode 266. And it was one of my all-time favorite and truly, I believe, one of the most powerful episodes on the Room to Grow podcast. Out of nearly 300 episodes, it's one of my absolute favorites. It's been incredibly popular and one of the episodes I have received the most feedback about out of any episode I've ever produced. Um, I've even had a couple of men actually reach out to me to let me know that it triggered them, but in ways that uh, they wanted to really sit with and explore, which was really, really cool to hear. And I've just gotten amazing feedback from everybody about it. So highly, highly recommend checking it out first because we do talk about uh, a couple things that we reference in this episode as well. So it will definitely serve you to hit pause on this one, go back to episode 266 first and then circle back. Um, So as you can tell by the title, (laughs) we're talking about choosing relentless courage, facing death and challenging societal norms. Just a few light topics. (laughs) This is how we roll. (laughs) <laughs> this episode is definitely a different vibe from the last one. And I still have a literal list about a mile long that I would love to dig into with Traver. So we'll have to see how many more times he, uh, he agrees to keep coming back on the podcast, make it some sort of mini series or something. <laughs> He's just been so incredibly generous with his time and his energy and his efforts. And he has just the most beautiful, powerful mission. So I strongly advise you to go and follow his work to check out his books. Um, Trevor is the author of two different books. He is a two-time uh, TEDx speaker. He's a men's coach and founder of the Uncivilized Men's Movement, which is radically redefining the way that men around the globe experience their masculinity by uniquely blending both primal elements of manhood with massive doses of consciousness. Uh, he has a, a really cool eclectic background that ranges everything from mixed martial arts to traditional Chinese medicine and meditation, um, and he ultimately teaches people how to use the inevitable pain in their lives as fuel for growth and positive change. And in this episode, we're going to be getting a little bit more into some of the the really transitional parts of his life a few years ago, um, because out in 2016, after losing a pregnancy, his marriage, and his business partnership all within weeks of each other. He created a radical social experiment for himself and spent the next 12 months as if it were his last year to live. He named it the Year to Live Project, and there are several different highlights from that, including volunteering with uh, the dying as a hospice worker, which we're going to talk about more today, spending 28 days in complete isolation and pitch black darkness in Guatemala, we will also get into that today and living in the frigid Utah wilderness for a month with only a knife, a water bottle, and a blanket. This is really, really powerful. This is really, really powerful. Um, we're going to be talking about how to have conversations with people that can be highly triggering as you step onto your own path and embark on your own journey that may likely go against the grain for many others around you and the unique challenges that can come with that, including the likelihood of losing a lot of relationships too. Um, we're going to talk about why you have to keep showing up with courage every single day. If you're going to get to where you're going, whatever that might look like for you and to hang on to the little moments that will continue to propel you forward. Even when everything else might feel dark. We're, we're getting into so much and Traver just shared so incredibly vulnerably. Uh, we both cry in this episode. I I, I tend to, this might sound odd. I, I, I tend to hold it as a little bit of a point of pride if I can make a guest cry. <laughs> and I mean that in the best possible way, only because when that happens, it usually means that that both the guest and I are so incredibly moved by what we're getting into um, that hopefully that that translates for you as well. I can't see how it wouldn't, Um, the way that Traver just speaks and shows up, it's hard not to be moved by his mission and uh, his words have a really powerful effect. So buckle up, put in your earbuds, settle in. This is such a great one. I can't wait for you to listen and please go connect with Traver as well. Okay. We have Traver back on the podcast because I'm so excited to have him on again that I, yeah, we, we talked about it last time. I was like, we you have to come back. So Traver, thank you for coming on for round two. Thank you for having <laughs> me
1: back. Such a pleasure.
0: <laughs> this is awesome. Okay. So for anyone who missed your first episode, everyone needs to stop now, go back to episode 266. It is one of the, the most commented on episodes in the best possible ways Ooh. I've ever published. Yes. Everyone loves it. One of my, one of my girlfriends, I forgot to tell you this. One of my girlfriends reached out. She was talking to me about some relationship stuff she had going on and a lot of it related to our conversation. So I told her to go, mm-hmm. listen, she messages me the next day and she goes, um, the latest question I'm pondering is, am I in love with Trevor?" <laughs>
1: <laughs> Amazing that wow. presence
0: again. Is that that potent presence? <laughs> mm-hmm. I love it. So yes, everyone has to go back, listen to 266 first, then Come back to this one. And Trey, I'm going to have you reintroduce yourself again a little bit. And there's all kinds of your story that we didn't even get into Mm -hmm. the last time, which is partly why you're back. So give us the gist and then we're going to dive into all the things.
1: Sure. Sure. I'm your like standard issue, (laughs) self-development kind of person. Uh, I'm an author, a speaker, a coach. I founded the Uncivilized Movement and the Uncivilized Nation, which is a, a very rapidly growing men's community. I wrote the book, Man Uncivilized, and the book, Today I Rise. And I mostly, you know, like my tagline is I teach men and women how to understand men, but I do a hell of a lot more. And I think my job in this life is to sit a mile above the human experience and look down on it and see it with a clarity or a different lens than most people can or most people do, and then to comment on it, to speak about how I view it and taking a lot of information in and kind of dissecting it down to, uh, easily digestible chunks. Hopefully. I mean, that's what I hope I do. I,
0: um, <laughs> I, I personally think that that's exactly what you do because you Thank think you. Concepts and like, that, I think that's why everyone loved that episode so much because they're like, Oh my God, he's, he's been saying everything I've been yeah. thinking, but it couldn't articulate. And I think that you get that, that sort of comment a lot from both men and women.
1: Yeah. I try to be the bridge between, here, this is the on-the-ground world. This is what works and what doesn't work, and the higher realms of like, okay, we can get lost in in higher ideas of thought and theoretical ideas. But you know, when I wrote Man Uncivilized, I wanted to speak to the guy who was in between David Data, Robert Bly, like all of these philosophical geniuses, and the plumber in Indiana who was like. I don't understand a fucking word. You just said like, okay, cool. This is why I'm here. I got this. I'm the cage fighter. Who's going to teach you how to meditate. Okay. We good on this. Cool. All right. Let's do Let's go.
0: I love that. And that's why you're able to speak to like such wide variety of of walks of of life to from both sides of the aisle, so to speak, to get everybody kind of on the same page. So, okay. So tell us a little bit about the sort of biggest catalyst that led you to where you are today, and more specifically, the year that followed that catalyst, because mm. that's a really big part of your story mm. that we didn't even get into the last time. So let's talk about that a little bit more. A sure. Little bit more.
1: You know, I was interviewing, or I did like a co-interview like with a guy named Rainier Wild. And <clears throat> we just said, as opposed to me interviewing you and you interviewing me, let's just chat. And he brought me back to something I'd forgotten that happened, which is so crazy. He said, what was the, like, the real moment that you knew you were a, you'd finally hit rock bottom. And so it wasn't like, and and if you've listened to the prior episode, my ex-wife and I were pregnant, she had a miscarriage, decided that that was the universe's way of telling her that the marriage should also be over. So she left. And then I went into a, a breakup per se with also with my business partner at the same time, different stories, not connected. So a lot of things happened very quickly. And yet when I, when Rainier asked me this day, I I was like, holy shit, this is the day. And so for about eight months, my ex-wife was back and forth. Like, I don't think we want to get divorced. I'm not sure what's going on. The universe hasn't really told me what I should do next. And I was kind of like, uh, um, okay, I'll just keep hanging out. And my business partner and I were also in a form of separation. And yet I wasn't sure Do I leave the business? Do I stay as a silent owner? Do I like come in and out? Like, what do I do? And finally, I get this email from my ex and and we had set up a time to go talk to a therapist. Finally, after months of like just spiritual bypass up the wazoo, I was like, we need a third party who's going to say that doesn't make sense what does that mean on earth? <laughs> and so I had this all set up and I was super excited. And for weeks I was waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting for this day. And so I get an email the day before and it just says, I can't show up tomorrow. Can't do it. We're done. I don't want to f- continue this anymore. Like game over. We're getting divorced. And I was oh. And I was like the weight of the world fell on me. All of this waiting, all of this hoping, all of this perhaps just gone. And so I leave and I get this at work. I leave work, go home and just sort of fall apart. And I get a message from my business partner saying like, hey, I I really need to talk to you about some, like where we're going with all of this too. And I remember saying like, today is not the day. Wait, this Uh, is
0: coinciding on the same day? Like again?
1: (laughs) An hour later, I get this, I get an email from him. He's like, hey, we need to chat. Uh, We need to like come to some, I have a resolution perhaps. And it was just like bad timing. Please don't. I back and said, like, you know, I'm about to go out of town for a week and a half. I would love to get this figured out before I go. And so I kind of just threw my hands in the air and was like, fuck it, come on over. Like, come to my house, let's chat about this. So he comes over and I'm half numb, right? Like I can half think, I'm just sort of sitting in the chair, but not really there. And I won't go into the particulars of the conversation because he's not here. But long story short, when he left, I said, okay, this relationship cannot go on. I can't go back to being a partner with this person, given the conversation that we just had. And so I'm sitting there on my couch and thinking, okay, I just got divorced twice in two hours.
0: <laughs> Almost like, like again, like part like, two.
1: Part two. And oh my God. So just sitting there and a bit in shock, right? A bit in numb, a bit in... I can't believe this is happening. This is some kind of fucked up Hallmark story. Like two months ago, my life was amazing or three months ago, whatever it was, uh, what the hell happened? And so I point to that moment as the, like, when you ask like, what was the catalyst? Because it was the first time that like I was falling into rock bottom for the last couple months, but that was when it was like splat. And Emily, here's what's weird, as awful and debilitating and draining and horrible as that moment was, there was also this sense of relief, like, okay, now we're here.
0: I was actually just going to ask starts. you if you yeah. felt any sense of relief at that point, especially because it had been dragging on. It's one thing to get punched in the face with it the first time around when you're not expecting it. But yeah. then when when you're waiting and, and hoping and, and all the things, that is so much harder than just... And ending one way or the other, like mm-hmm. no matter how heartbroken you can be there, there can actually just be some relief in not having to, to wait anymore. And potentially for some people some empowerment, if they're the ones making the decision to just say, no, I'm done. Like this for sure. is finished. Yeah.
1: Yeah. The, the, when she first told me she was leaving, I threw up, it was like that acutely traumatic, but it was such a high intensity. Like it was so awful. And it was like, ah, but this was such a low intensity. It was like such a low grade awfulness, but yet there was that tiny seed of, of like, okay, at least the process can start now. And that is the moment. Like that was the turning point. And so to answer your question of talk about the year to live project um, this is, you know, it was, it was very shortly after, it was perhaps two or three months after this that, I got a call from a woman at my gym who ran TEDx Santa Barbara. She was a gym member. And I had given a talk at the gym on how do you use pain? Like, how do you alchemize pain? I was talking to a bunch of CrossFitters, but it was about emotional pain, about spiritual pain, about um, mental pain. Like, how do you use when bad shit happens in your life? And she called me, she actually approached me at the end of that talk. She was in the audience and said, you need to give this at Ted. And I was like, no, I don't need to do anything. I I need to go home, eat four ice cream sandwiches, (laughs) hold myself, cry a little bit and and just not do shit. And like, thank you. And I'll file that in the couple of years from now file. So two or three months after the double divorce, she calls me and says, I can get you on the stage of Ted LA. Here's what they want. They want you to do a uh, like personal experiment. So they're looking for empirical data at this TED. They don't want a philosophical talk. They don't want a storytelling talk. They want you to, so here's what you're going to do. Take 20 people who are in pain, work them through your process. And at the end of the six weeks, you present to the TED stage. And I was like, not a fucking chance. I can't handle myself let alone 20 humans for six weeks. I'm up and down. I can't get out of bed. I'm dealing with two sets of attorneys. Like my life is not amazing at the moment. What had happened perhaps two weeks prior to her calling me was I went down to uh, the against the stream meditation center in Los Angeles run by Noah Levine. And I went, did a meditation, listened to the Dharma talk and was like, cool. Afterwards I had to pee. I went in the bathroom. I came out of the bathroom and then there was this cork board outside of the bathroom. And I was like, oh, cool corkboard." And I started looking at it, it had like the goings on of the meditation center. And there was this sheet that said the year to live program. And it, it grabbed me. I was like, what the hell is the year to live program? And so I did some quick reading and left and drove back to Santa Barbara, Googled it and realized and found out like, oh, it's a 12 month program that this organization puts on based off of a book that Noah's dad wrote called The Year to Live. And it was all about preparing people who had terminal illness to prepare them to transition out of life. And so it was a a year of meditating, of forgiveness, but it was all internal stuff. Like, how do you prepare your internal world to transition? I was like, okay, this is fascinating. I'm not dying per se. I feel like it. A lot, like with a capital <laughs> L. So I called them and said, hey, what do you think about me doing your program? Uh, I'm not dying and I'm not sure I'm going to be in LA. i are like, well, you have to be here for 12 months. You have to actually, this is a live in-person thing. This was pre-COVID, so no one had Zoom. And I'm like, oh shit, I can't do that, huh? But that's really interesting. So now if we fast forward the two weeks to Kimberly, my, the TED woman calling me, and saying, hey, I can get you on Ted LA. And I hung up and said, no fucking way. What I got was this massive download of whatever in the moment. I was like, oh, and I just got chills telling you that. Yeah. Um, and I called her back and said, here's what I'm gonna do. Tell Ted LA, I will be back in 12 months and I will do a human experiment, a social experiment on myself, not 20 people, And the experiment's going to be, I will live the next 12 months, literally as if I will be dead the day after. And she went, oh shit. Okay. Do that.
0: (laughs) Yes. I think Ted will be interested in that.
1: (laughs) And Emily, look at this, my arms. Oh my
0: gosh. Um, Every time I talk to you, we both end up getting killed.
1: (laughs) And I knew that's what I was going to do with this interim period, right? Like I'm suddenly not going to be a parent. I'm not a husband. I'm not running a massive business. Uh, I have this huge amount of open space, which to some people may sound like a dream, but in reality is actually terrifying. Like what the hell, who am I and what am I going to do with myself next? And so the guise of the year, like I didn't want to just prepare for some theoretical thing, which hopefully wouldn't come. The guise, the frame that I had for the year was, If on December 31st at midnight, I took my last breath, how would I take it full? How Mm -hmm. would I take it without apology, without an open loop, without anything that hadn't been done yet? That was part A. But part B was, I'm hoping I'm going to live for like the next 40, 50 years. I was, I just turned, I was about to turn 40. So I thought, what do I need to learn that I don't know that got me to where I am now, which is rock bottom? So how do I need to educate myself and what experiences do I need to have that will inform me to being a radically different human for the next 40 years? And so, boom, that was the idea. And so I sat and you know, I was a CrossFit coach. So what did I do? Nailed a whiteboard into my wall <laughs> of my little studio that I was living in and sat in front of it and just started meditating. I was like, you can't leave the fucking mat. Until you have a gist of what this idea will be. And it just started, boom. First thing was, you're going to work in hospice. I was like, I don't know shit about shit about hospice. But I went and wrote it down. Like, volunteer in hospice, work in hospice. Okay, where am I going to do that? New Mexico. What are you talking about? I've never been to New Mexico. This is the dumbest. (laughs) Write it down, right? Go apologize to ex-girlfriend who you haven't had a conversation with in 10 years, but whom, for whom every time you think of, you get a stomach ache. Okay. Unfinished oh. business there. Write that down.
0: Yeah,
1: My family hasn't been together for a Christmas in over 25 years. Okay. Write that down. I've always wanted to do the like Hawk Finn, you know, outdoor survival camp, the like um, outward bound type thing. It was like survival school, wrote it down. And then these things just started coming in the next two weeks. Uh, like I took, a, I signed up for a course with Michaela Bohm. I researched how to get in front of Carolyn Mace. Um, I did a men, my first men's weekend. Uh, then at that weekend, someone introduced me to the idea of the dark retreat, the month in darkness. And so this whole thing just came together. And so that was an entire year of my life. I left Santa Barbara. I put, gave away all my stuff, gave my dog to my ex wife, and went on an adventure. That was, it just like ripped my chest open every damn day. And here was the asterisk I'll make it all public. So I will write and publish this the entire time in real time as it's happening. That was the deal I made with the universe. And it was, it was, it's truly the catalyst year of my life. And to this day, the stories, the experiences, the people, the lessons are interwoven into everything that I do.
0: And what was the, first of all, thank you for sharing. Like that's, mm-hmm. that's just an incredible story. And something that I really want to highlight there is the freedom part, because one of sort of the main free pillars that, that this podcast, my brand, me personally is it, built upon is freedom. Mm. but freedom, people think that they want it, until they have it, and then I ended up in a very similar position to you, where all of a sudden my slate was wiped clean, essentially, mm. other than you know all the baggage that's carrying along behind. <laughs> <laughs> that's always it. The, the asterisk to that little statement. <laughs> I have
1: nothing but the need for therapy. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> basically that. Yes. Basically that. <laughs> but I when when the, sl- the slate is so called wiped clean. You're looking mm. ahead, and you have to write an entirely new story, and you're like. this this is terrifying. What, what the fuck do I do now? Mm
1: -hmm. (laughs) And it's,
0: it's a lot when you have that level of freedom, Mm -hmm. it's a grass is always greener situation because you're like, but what, which way do I step? I don't know Mm -hmm. if this is the right way, all of those things. So Mm -hmm. that's something I really want to highlight for people because a lot of people will, will look at something, not again, not like the traumatic part, but they'll look at the part no. where you get to write a new story or where I sure. got to write a new story. And they might actually be envious of that. Like, oh, like how mm-hmm. cool would that be? And I'm like, it comes with a price. It does. Like, everything comes with a price.
1: And there's and- a choice factor to it Yeah that I will say. Um, one of the things I did at the time was publish my, to start writing publicly, which I hadn't done. And The month before I went on this journey, I posted an article saying, I'm 40 years old. I don't have a wife. I don't have a kid. I don't have a job. I don't really have a purpose right now. I have two options right in this moment. Like I'm literally standing at the fork in the road. To the right is abject failure as a man. This is not what I wanted. This is not what I planned. I have goal book after goal book, after notebook, after consultant, after workshop behind me. And I'm right here with essentially nothing. Or to the left is pure freedom. Mm. It is the ability to actually just start like day one, line one, word one, new story. And I went left and I talked to people. And this is why I'm sharing this because I talk to people every day. Who have lost so much and are standing on that same precipice and feel the pull to the right of like but i'm just a failure but i'm a failure like you are just looking at a choice not an easy one a profound one but one that you personally get to make and one you know i'll be honest for the first couple weeks of that journey had to remind myself you're not a failure this is, this is, trust me, there's something guiding you in this direction. This didn't come down and come through just as this isn't a vacation. in you know, at club med, this is a journey. And so embrace it.
0: It takes like a, a reckless and relentless level of courage to face it because you have to keep choosing courage. It's, it's not, you don't moment. choose. Yeah. Moment. You don't choose it once. You have to keep choosing it over and over and over again. <laughs>
1: moment to moment for so much of that year of driving to Santa Fe, like living with a stranger of showing up to hospice training to the first client slash patient I had in hospice, which I'll share with you. I went and sat with this man for like 15 minutes and I put my hand on his shoulder and then I got the feeling that, okay, he's had enough. And I said, okay, I'll see you tomorrow. I hope you have a great evening. And, And he didn't say a word the entire time i was there but turned and kind of like mumbled a thank you and then the next morning i got a note from my coordinator saying he had passed right after i saw him and that is a fucking initiation right for a guy who used to run a crossfit gym and punch people in the face for a living like okay you you really want this this is the gig it's going to fuck you up over and over and over and over and over again but it's going to fuck you open just as powerfully and just as often. So are, are you in are you in? And it was, I can't tell you how many times I had to go through that. Like, this is, this is meant to be, it's meant to stay on it. Keep breathing. This is doing stuff that you don't understand yet. It will make sense later that you're not a failure. Keep going, keep going, keep going. You know, Somebody it's, needs it's to hear
0: these words from you. I mean, a lot of people yeah. do, but yeah. It, wh- whoever is listening to this, like in, in real time, I think that those words are going to
1: yeah, hit people faith. when,
0: when they need it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah like, exactly. Your heart.
1: Like I just trusted and I hate to use something that sounds so cliche, Emily, but I, I just trusted a whisper, right? Like I was a guy who needed the scream and the, the hit in the head. Like I needed that to know something was true. Like, really? You think it's true? Show it to me. This was okay. I have 0.0001% faith and I'm going to ride on that thing. That's all I need right now.
0: Yeah. And something I want to point out from that as well is th- this is something that I've been seeing coming up a lot with people lately is they're so busy in their heads and they may be anti-meditation. And I'm like, fine, I will not push meditation on you. It's not for everybody. That's cool. But you have to cultivate some stillness because people are like, how do I listen to my intuition? And, and you're talking about a whisper. People are like, what fucking whisper? I want to hear a whisper. Like, <laughs> I'm like, if you, if you fill your life up all the time with like, people and things and distractions and, and TV and porn and the internet and Instagram, and whatever, you won't hear the fucking whisper because it, it, it's going to be too noisy. You have to allow the space for the whisper to come in. Like when I went, went through my breakup, uh, for the six months that I was still in Canada and, and every time I would need to drive anywhere, I drove in silence mm-hmm. because I couldn't stand the sound of anything. Mm-hmm. I was like, I just want silence. And Mm -hmm. when people ask how I've learned to listen to my intuition, I'm like, it's come from a lot of silence. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And that's one of the only reasons why, because otherwise you can't hear anything. So that's really powerful. If you don't want to do like an active meditation, fine, but you have to at least be silent and still sometimes, Mm -hmm. and just let Mm -hmm. the thoughts come like, and Mm -hmm. see, see what happens, see what comes of it. And whatever crazy thought might enter your mind, maybe that's Mm -hmm. the whisper that you're looking for.
1: Mm -hmm. We've lost our ability to be bored
0: Mm -hmm.
1: and we've lost our ability to just sit in space, right? I spent two hours yesterday on my porch, just sitting there. I have so much to do. I have endless amounts of work, but know for a fact that those two hours will be more nourishing than me sitting here, checking Instagram, writing fucking emails, scrolling through YouTube, doing what, like doing the things that I do to keep myself from being okay, just sitting in space. But it is, like there's the, it's the, it's the, the silence between the thoughts. Mm-hmm. I was meditating, and you can say like, I don't meditate, great. I personally was meditating up to an hour a day through that entire process leading up to that information coming in, an hour. I had a lot of training in meditation. So it wasn't that intense, but preparing for the dark, even I was doing eight hours a day, like going to workshops and retreats so they are like, Hey, it's 5.00 AM. You guys will be done at four. And every hour you're going to get up and walk around for three minutes and sit the fuck back down and get back to it. And it's like that kind of training that allows for the whisper. You said it. Everyone wants the whisper. They don't want to create the space for the whisper to come through. It ain't on Instagram. And I say that as someone who's on Instagram (laughs) trying to sell you guys shit. It ain't on Instagram.
0: (laughs) And people also sometimes will be like, well, I meditated every day this week and I don't hear anything. And I'm like, okay. (laughs) (laughs) It takes a little while. Like, just like you said, like, my God, you're meditating like eight hours a day to prepare for going into darkness. And we can talk about that a little more. Darkness 24 hours a day for a month straight. And most people would never even consider doing that. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, it's, so tell us, I mean, you can tell us more about uh, the month in the dark. Sure. Um, and I'd also love to hear if there is a particular, and, and this is probably a, a tough question to ask you, but is there a particular either moment or lesson or person from that year that touched you in the mm-hmm. most profound Way or is is sort of uh, someone or something that that stays with you the most? Like when you think mm-hmm. of that year, what sort of the, the top of mind experience or person or lesson that, that comes to you?
1: Uh, I'm gonna start crying just. Soon.
0: <laughs> um, Listen, were, tears are welcome here. Yeah, it's fine.
1: <laughs> there were so many, I could list fifty. Um, it was the it was this I've never seen Eat Pray Love and I kind of make fun of her in my book or the that movie. So do I. <laughs> but it really was magical. Mm-hmm. It was everyone from and I'll share some poignant ones, but there were people who like I, I walked into a bathroom in Arizona to go take a piss in a restaurant, driving to Ted to give a Ted talk, and there was a dude shooting heroin in his arm. And I didn't talk to him. I shut the door and I went back to my seat and ate, ate my breakfast, but he's in my talk because it was such a juxtaposition to be like, this is the human experience. This is, people don't understand how to deal with pain. This guy is in so much pain. He's in a public restaurant shooting up and I'm driving across country to give a Ted talk, right? Like, I don't know what he's lost. I know what I've lost. I know what I'm going through right now, what I'm in the middle of, of that shitstorm. Yet I have support. I have people that love me, people that care about me, people that would literally drive to that bathroom, rip me out, beat the shit out of me and put me in rehab. And he doesn't. So, I mean, and, and that's that was a seven second interaction, right? But there were so many things like that from lovers, from women who took me in, from friends that I made to... You know, p- people who were in the ashram that I lived in for a day and, and I remember them. Um, but, you know, the, the experience of hospice is so profound and was so profound to me as someone who was broken hearted, who was just devastated. Um, to be in the final moments of people's life was such an honor, right? It was such a fucking honor, Uh, and their requirement of me was nothing but my presence.
0: So here I have Mm
1: -hmm. this resume of the most successful gym in California, married to so-and-so an ex-professional fighter, a graduate degree from this school, undergraduate from this, like I'm how I'm built every, how I write everything that's uh, people would look at and go, Oh, wow, that's amazing. And I remember the first time I asked one of the guys, like, what do you want me to do for you? Do you want me to read? Do you want me to play cards? Do you want me to tell you stories? Like, do you want me to, I would sneak acupuncture needles in there. They'll probably get pissed at me for doing this. It was <laughs> illegal, but I was like, these people are fucking dying. I could put needles in them. And, and I remember the first guy just saying like, I just want you to sit here with me. Like, that's all I need. And, and I was crushed by that, right? Like, oh, there's value in me that is not requiring my resume. And it goes in directly in the face of the experience that I just had, which is the person who told me she'd love me and be with me forever, just disappearing. And the story that I tell myself is that the only reason that can be possible is because I have no worth. Why would anybody want to be with me if that person doesn't want to be with me? And this guy in his lowest moment, in his most vulnerable moment is just saying, just sit here with me for an hour and you'll change my being. You'll change my experience. So it was I mean I'm I'm telling you I'm like that whole thing was 50 mind fucks a day. In all the best ways. It would I would drive home and you know five out of six times just rip my truck into a parking lot and just explode crying. Just sobbing. I think to release what had just been experienced of holding someone's hand of reading to someone of you know like I had this girl who was 16 as a client or a patient and She was wheelchair bound and, um, had a thing where she couldn't swallow well. So like, it was this whole litany of challenges and I would play the guitar for her and sing and she would just beam and beam and beam. But now here's the asterisk. I don't play the fucking guitar. (laughs) And I don't know how to sing. Right. Like you are not talking to a musician here at like at all, at all. Like I know C, D and E and like this hand used to punch people so I can go really <laughs> fast. Like, you know, I was a teenage dude, so I have some speed. So, so that was it. Like That, that was my skill set. But just the fact that she would just like, ah, would beam and would be so joyful that I was doing that for her. I think she probably knew that I sucked and was just like I need to make him feel better. <laughs> but she was also 16. Yeah. Right? And dying. And that just like leaving her house was every day like how is this possible that I get to go on this journey fully supported like I had a paycheck from my business leaving like I was supported. At any point I could pull the plug and go live with 20 friends and, and whoever I needed to and, and be taken care of. And this, this young woman is bedridden. Uh, I have, yeah, I have a hundred stories from hospice that um, someday I am going to write this book and that experience will just blow people's minds. We are so, det- I'm going to go on a soapbox here for a second. We're so detached from death here in the U S or in the West. We don't talk about it, but yet we're so terrified of it right and we shuttle our old people we shuttle people who are dying and we put them in these rooms in these homes and we don't we don't view them we don't talk to them we don't see them there's no grace in there anymore and so just to have the ability to provide a tiny bit of grace to someone but the truth is i honestly believe that i walked out of hospice having gained so much more than i gave and that for that, I will be forever grateful to all of those men and I'll, all of the men and women. I'll send you a couple of pictures I have uh, with them at the end of just just these beautiful fucking souls.
0: I don't. Okay, now I'm gonna cry. <laughs> Yet somehow you managed yeah. to make us laugh in there at the same time. I. That's really incredibly, incredibly powerful. Thank you for being so yeah,
1: it was vulnerable. I hope people do it. I tried to do it when I came back to Evergreen and then the, uh, COVID hit. Um, but first of all, so many of these people were hilarious. Like just, oh, I, lo- I have always loved old people, but they were hilarious. And so many stories, like just this, and I just wanted to capture them. like you need a documentary because you are fucking hilarious. Uh, but then also the lessons, you know, I'll share one last lesson with you. And that was so vital. I had a a client or a patient named Richard who was 93 years old and he was just this amazing guy. And he would tell stories of of like, he stormed the beach at Normandy, right? This guy's like sitting alone in a a facility in in Santa Fe, New Mexico, but that was his life. And I'll tell you, shared two stories with you. One was the day he was so excited because he found out, and I'm going to put that in quotes, that when you die and go to heaven, you live as half the age you are now. And so he's like, bro, like 46 and a half. And he would call me kid, you know, he would call me kid or he would call me like uh, someone else's name and was like, it's fine. You're 93. You can call me whatever you want. I'm like, kid, 46 is such a great year for me. I was like, well, how, how do you know this is true? And he was just like, it's going around. It's going so, right. Right. <laughs> so even like oh. old even like hospice facilities have their their gossip in their <clears> room <throat> what was beautiful about richard and so challenging for me until it switched was he desperately wanted to die
0: mm.
1: he was 93 his wife who was like the love of his life had died 10 years before he's like none of my friends are alive i'm 93 i see my family you know from time to time but Like mostly I sit here and I watch black and white TV and I push a button and half an hour later, someone comes and helps me to the bathroom. And I have someone living in in, in the same room with like a curtain dividing and I don't like him and it's, I don't want to be here. And he was very deeply troubled that perhaps God was angry with him. And that's why he was keeping him alive. And it was some days it was so hard, Uh, but I actually had to leave. Santa Fe, to go do the dark, to go do the dark experience. And I told him, I was like, if you're alive, when I get out of here, out of there, and I'm anywhere within 12 hours of New Mexico, I will fucking drive here and see you again. And so I go down to Guatemala and do the thing that we can talk about next. And I come out of that, you know, a month later, I get email a week or so later than that and check. And there's some emails from my hospice coordinator saying like backdated, you know, like, Hey, just want to let you know, Richard went to the hospital today. He had a UTI. Uh, they're not sure he's going to make it. Hey, Richard made it, but now he's got a sinus infection. He's going back to the hospital. They're not sure he's going to make it. And there were a couple other things. And I was like, Oh man, he's, he's hurting. And so I go back to the States and like, I'm within 12 hours. So I, I drive to Santa Fe and I go to see him. And before I left, when I said like Richard was 93, He was thriving in some capacity. I was like, bro, you got like two years left. Like, hang on. You look great for 93. Uh, And I said, I'll send you a picture. But when I walked into his room after leaving and coming back and him going through those challenges, he looked like shit Mm -hmm. and he looked like he'd aged, you know, five, 10 years. And I remember seeing him and I went right up to him and I put my hand on his shoulder and I said, Richard, you look like shit. Congratulations. I think you're going to die soon. And I have no idea where that came from. That is not a very polite thing to say to somebody. And he looked right at me and his eyes lit up and he's like, do you think so? Do you really think so? And he had so much hope and so much like want for that. And so the lesson I took from it was we as a culture are so afraid of this thing that one, we have no control over. Two, I think it's going to be a great big adventure. But three, it's not the death that we should fear. It's ending up in a home alone with a life that we still want to live that we haven't. Like with regret, with open loops, with things that we wanted to accomplish that we didn't. Because that that's coming for all of us, both death and for a lot of us, you know, a hard last two years or whatever it was that he was in here. But it instantly made me go, death is not bad. Death is not the thing we need to worry about. It's this unlived life that we do. And for that lesson, I will, you know, forever be indebted to Richard.
0: This is the first time that both a guest and I have both cried on a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> oh my Good. God. Oh, yeah. Um I mean, there's so many things I, I want to touch on from that. What, one of them, I'm going to circle back for, for a minute to the self-worth piece where you, you felt the, the value of your presence. And Mark Groves, actually, I talked about this on a previous episode. Mark Groves came out with a quote that punched me in the face. Mm. And he said, um, you will not recognize the value of, sorry, you will not recognize the impact of your absence If you don't know Mm -hmm. the value of your presence, Mm -hmm. and I was like, "Oh fuck," Mm -hmm. (laughs) because yeah, so goddamn good
1: with words. I know,
0: right? He's such a wordsmith. But that one, I was, I was hit hard with that Mm -hmm. one because it was almost bringing up the idea of um, being afraid of being forgotten, Mm -hmm. which is very poignant when we talk about death as well. Mm And Marcus Aurelius talked about how he, he accepted and acknowledged that he would be forgotten after death. Mm-hmm. The irony is that obviously he has not been because hundreds of years later, we're still talking about him. But yeah. I do think that that ties in really powerfully with, with a life fully lived. Mm-hmm. So e- even if you, if you, if you live a full life, it will probably be easier to accept and acknowledge that you will be forgotten after death. Whereas if you don't recognize the value of your presence and you don't live fully, no wonder you're going to fear death. Right. 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 It's, it's interesting when we think about it in those, in those contexts, but then death kind of has to be sort of the over the overarching theme for all of us because it's what pushes us to do the things while we're here too mm-hmm. so we kind mm-hmm. of have to be reminded of it and what better reminder than to i mean i feel like everyone should go volunteer in a hospice
1: truly I, I, it would change you know i walked away from the year with a lot of knowings but people volunteering in hospice and we can get to it at a, a whole different conversation and at some point i had to kill something to eat it and I think doing those to kill an animal to eat it mm-hmm. and volunteering in hospice and killing your own food. If that was a requirement, like, oh, you don't get to go. Th- you're not graduating from high school until you do this. Our entire culture would change forever. And for the better, in my opinion. There'd be
0: a lot more vegetarians likely.
1: There'd be a lot more compassion.
0: <laughs> That's right? true. The compassion piece. would be a lot
1: more farmers. There'd be a lot, more, be a lot yep. more, yeah, there'd be a lot more vegetarians. But just, a lot less waste. We'd, we'd just be connected to... We're so disconnected from being human and what it actually entails. Like that, what a weird sentence we're so disconnected from being, from the process that we're all in. And death is such a piece of that overarching fear of like, it's it's such a piece of the overarching avoidance. I don't even want to acknowledge it. I don't even want to think it exists. I had everybody in my Kill the Nice Guy course write their own obituary. And it fucked a lot of guys up, but for a lot of them, for it fucked a lot of them up, but for all of them, it was the reminder of, Hey, this is coming. And so I can either choose to get on the path. I want to get on five years from now and miss five years, or I can get my ass in gear right now and start taking some risks, start actually living a life that I want to live. And for me, that's what this year was about. it was about coming out and saying, this isn't about ditching all your shit and traveling for a year. It's not about, you know, checking the, the bucket list boxes. It's about your soul and your heart actually being active participants in the life that you're designing to live. It's like, it's that brutally simple, but yet it's, it's challenging because of all the trappings that we were talking about before the call. Like, the false sense of security, the false sense of abundance, the false sense of safety.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: When in the in reality, everybody knows that the rug can get pulled in some way. And at some time, boom, you can control all you. want. You, like, you want to have a good time? Go tell the universe that you're in control, right? Or go tell God, whatever the quote is, like, go tell God you're in control. Like, okay. Yeah, I remember those days. Yeah, I was like, <laughs> January 8th. Uh, <laughs> 2015. I was sure as shit in control of everything. And then what do you know? January 9th. That was an interesting day. Uh, and now I don't have nearly the control illusion <laughs> that I do. <laughs> and it's, hopefully COVID did that for people.
0: Yes. That's what I'm hoping too. And and I want to dig into this more with you because we, we were kind of talking about a few different angles of that. And, and with this whole idea of, of, as you put it, unplugging from the matrix, like sort of deviating mm-hmm. from the norm and how to handle that and how to have those types of conversations. And I think it's mm-hmm. also really interesting to think of it in the context of the, the people who, who are doing things, they're on a certain path. It's, you know, the, the normal path, whatever. And they think they've got shit locked down. Mm. I, I now always hear um, it's not intended to be arrogant, but I hear arrogance when Mm. I hear people say something just as an example, I'll just, I'll pull infidelity in, in, as an example, people are like, uh, you know, my partner would never cheat at me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I'm like, you don't know that. You don't know that you won't cheat. Right. You don't know what circumstances will come up in the future. And don't be so arrogant as to assume that you can control every possible factor. And right. I don't say that to scare people. I say that to, to bring a degree of realism to it. To, I, I, I think when, when some of us go through, you know, kind of like the life shattering moments, it, I talked to a friend about this. It, it, it pulls some of the, the dizzy magic off but not in a way that makes me a pessimist. I think sure. it just makes people more of a, a realist a little right. bit. Right. And I love the exercise too, that you did with, uh, with the, your men's group about the obituary. I, I have uh, a really close friend that we have a lot of conversations about death. And, and one thing that I love, he's created an entire playlist called Family Death Songs. And yeah. any of us that are close to him, he, he makes us give him... Uh, a song or, or a handful of songs that that we would that we would hear at our own funerals mm. essentially and then he's like sometimes I'll just go on road trips and I'll play the playlist and I, I think of all my favorite memories with all of my favorite people when I listen to the mm. playlist and i'm like like it's just it's so beautiful like when we think about death in those terms as opposed to pushing mm. it to one side when we know it's inevitable it's it's coming for all of us not, nobody gets to escape this it it changes the conversation and then it makes it not necessarily easier but um just changes things when we think of doing things our way as opposed mm-hmm. to doing things the way everybody else is doing it and mm-hmm. the way that we mm-hmm. should so-called Persept. be doing it yes yeah. so That's how do we start to deviate and and have those conversations those potentially very potent uncomfortable conversations with people and you know i think you and i talk to a lot of people especially you about how how do you do this? Like, how do you, how do you live the unconventional from a variety of different Mm -hmm. angles?
1: I'm going to preface this or, you know, and I'll put this in the frame actually of the dark experience because I can do two birds with one stone here. So early on in this year, I was at a men's group for my first time in a men's circle. And it, it blew my mind a thousand different ways. And I told one of the guys there, Hey, I'm doing this thing called the year to live project. I'm, pretending in quotes that I'm dying for the year and I will at the end of the year. And he goes, well, if you really want to understand what death is without physically dying, you need to do a dark retreat. And I was like, cool. What's this? Tell me more about this. <laughs> it's like, well, uh, he goes, I have spent 180 days in complete darkness by myself over the course of 49 days, 49 days, two weeks, etc." And I went, Oh,
0: uh, I shouldn't have asked <laughs> Now please, I'm going to have to do it <laughs> Please tell me more
1: he says, Well, the first time I actually didn't make it to 49 days I got pulled out at like day 42 Because my eyes, ears, and nose were bleeding And this is in Tibet And I was like, oh, oh God. why did that happen? He's like, well, the Tibetans said that I got so deep in meditations That I experienced demons And I was like, okay, motherfucker What really happened? <laughs> <laughs> I, like, I, think I, had re- I think I had really, really bad food poisoning and was like coughing and, and heaving so hard that I broke a bunch of blood vessels. And my next thought was, okay, I have to do this. <laughs> I knew that so, that was coming. Yeah, it was coming, right? <laughs> so when we talk about death, just to give, I'll give context. And then many of the, most of the lessons I learned in that room were about death. So a dark retreat to give everybody context here is a period of time that you spend that I spent in a small room that has a shower, a toilet, and a very, mine didn't have much else. That was like a hardwood. It was a concrete floor. I had a meditation mat, a yoga mat, a very thin irrelevant mattress to sleep on a toilet and a shower for a month with zero light as in zero, zero as in never as in Nope, your eyes don't adjust on day five. As in, I literally couldn't see for a month. And just since this question will come up, there was like a a mailbox in the side of the hut. This was a concrete hut. That one side would open, food would get slid in, that would be shut. They'd ring a bell, the people taking care of me, this was in an ashram. And the other side would open, I would get the food, close it. So yes, I didn't have to do my own cooking, because that always was there a toilet and how did you eat are a lot of the like stopping points or people are like, wait, I don't give a fuck about the lessons. Like, where, where did you poop? Like in a toilet. Thank you. Uh, okay. So imagine this like a month, a month is a long time. A day is a long time for people who go, I tried meditating and I couldn't really do it for more than three or four minutes. This is 40,320 minutes of solitude with no light. A lot came up, a lot happened. Two of the biggest lessons were around death or around the idea of death, because it must have been. And just to give you a little more context, like I stopped sleeping regularly, I think on like day eight. So I would be up for most of the night and then like take these intermittent night. It was infuriating because I just stopped sleeping. And I could tell time by when the food came because it came at the same time every day. It was 9 a.m., 1 p.m., 5 p.m. and then nothing from five to nine. So on day like 23, 24, I don't know, uh, I had this experience of kind of waking up on the floor and not being able to cognitively understand whether I was alive or dead or not. It was, I was so exhausted. It had been so emotional. It had been so much like crying, so much insanity. Like, I literally lost my mind a number of times. So much hallucination, just you name it. Lost a ton of weight because they weren't feeding me CrossFitter type like meals. No protein uh, it was, shakes. It was vegan. <laughs> yeah. which is like a whole nother situation. <laughs> um, so I'm lying there and not sure, like literally touching my face. Like, is this real? Is this a dream? Have I left and died and now I'm back? Was this whole thing just a dream? Am I hallucinating? It was very, very disconcerting. When I did finally come back into consciousness or my body or whatever, the lesson was so clear. This is coming. You're 40. Probably in the next 40 years, you will be in a hole in the ground that's pitch black all by yourself. The world around you will still go on. Like right now, when you're trying to figure this shit out, whether you're alive or not, someone's posting on Facebook, someone's falling in love, someone's having a baby, someone's getting in a car accident, some politicians lying about not being gay, something's happening, right? Mm -hmm. This is, this is real. So here's, here's what, uh, here's the lesson you either have to, you can either go out and you can limp around and you can play small and you can hope that you don't fuck up and you hope that you don't piss anybody off and not live fully expressed and you're going to die. Or you can come out of here and start swinging for the fences. You can take risks. You can write the way you want, live the way you want, express yourself the way you want, and you're still going to die. So you don't get to bypass the end by how you live the journey. So live the journey, however you want. That was so freeing. And the part two of it was see the world going on around you. You are fucking irrelevant. You literally are just a speck of dust in this history, two generations from now, and they'll be done talking about you. So again, They'll be done talking about you, whether you fuck up all over the place and you write the worst book that no one ever reads and you talk about (laughs) shit that no one likes and nobody likes you and you never fall in love again. And you're a terrible lover and like two generations, you're done. You're out. Your slate is wiped clean. And what does that actually give you permission to do, right? It gives you permission to get out there and actually live a great life, knowing that there's this freedom that comes at the end of it of a slate wiped clean. So go do that. That part um, was so profound because especially if I pull back in and talk about free expression, my frame for that month was zero judgment. I will not judge myself at all. Like, I don't care what happens in here. Laugh, cry, shit yourself, doesn't matter. Like Leave early, die, don't care, no judgment, zero. And it was an exercise in having no judgment. Imagine the thoughts you'd have alone in a room for a month. Mine were pretty dark at times, right? I'm coming out of a miscarriage. I'm coming out of a divorce. I'm coming out of what I feel like is a marital betrayal. I'm coming out of having to deal with attorneys. For the first time in my 40 years on earth, I'm looking back at trauma of my life. So yeah, I have some dark thoughts in there. No judgment, a lot of permission. And so I come out of this experience, since we're talking about death, and I get on the phone with maybe four or five people in the next week and ask them, like, can you imagine Can you imagine living one day of your life without judgment? Like you wear what you want to wear, you write what you want to write, you fuck how you want to fuck, you eat how you want to eat, you, you do everything just how you want to do. And I'm not giving people permission to be assholes or psychopaths or like, oh, I, I wanted to shoot up. You don't get to do that. You don't get to like, oh, I racked up 50 grand. Nope, you don't get to do that. You don't get to hurt people. But if you just got to be you for a day, how would that change you? And, f- and five out of five just burst out crying.
0: Hmm.
1: And most of them said, I don't get to breakfast without like a team of judgment. I don't get to the mirror without horrible judgment. I don't get to go to like, I don't make my morning commute without beating the shit out of myself. And I wanted to like reach through the phone and and both hug them, but also shake them and say, you don't have to live this way. And guess what? I'm gonna be a total dick here. You're gonna die, right? (laughs) Like, so none of this really fucking matters anyway. Like start, like wear the colored shirts, do the thing, like date who you want, ask the person, write the book, do do the thing that you're here to do. Because you, when you ask the first question, like how do you unplug from conventionality, you realize just how perilous this whole life thing is and go, I cannot waste one more minute because every minute I play in conventionality, if it's not what I want, is adding to the addiction of the facade of the safety of it. I get a little more drip, like one more drip of fake security pumped right into my veins. One more drip, one more drip, one more drip. And it gets harder and harder and harder to say, "Wow, I don't want this anymore." I don't I, I haven't wanted to be an attorney. I've wanted to be a writer. And I know he's writing a lot, but that's my thing. I haven't wanted to be an X. wanted to be Y. I'm in this marriage that's it's got no intimacy, but I'm so scared of telling my partner that I want more, or I'm so scared of leaving a partner who can't give me more. I'm so scared of dropping out of school, of, of everything, of disappointing so-and-so. But I think it starts with, this is why I'll try to wrap this all together, it starts with stopping the judgment of who you are. It's stopping the incessant fucking mind chatter that says, if you lose three pounds, you can do the thing. If you have more hair, you can do the thing. When you make enough money, you can do the thing. When mom and dad pass so they won't judge you, you can be who you are. Like, it starts with you looking in the mirror and saying, I am being assaulted constantly by the civilized world. I will not be a participant in that assault, starting, boom, this moment forward. And then feeling, when do these thoughts come up? And then how do you interplay with them, right? When it's like, oh, you're, you're, you're so dumb. Really? I wore a rubber band on my wrist for a year going through a divorce. It was like, I wonder what she's doing. Snap. My life's going to be fucking awesome. <laughs> I wonder what oh, snap <laughs> still. Awesome. <laughs> no
0: hurt wrist. But
1: we're going through a lot of rubber bands. It's a
0: powerful exercise,
1: <laughs> but like the judgment slowly stopped the, the mind chatter. stopped. the, my mind and my being and my heart became allies. So how do you do it? Like you first collect your team. You collect people who live outside the box. You can collect the readings and the spiritual texts or whatever it is, the podcast, the videos, the books, the posters, the whatever it is that you have to put together that support you unplugging from this thing that is a, a machine that's bigger than all of us and is so seductive and is so addictive and is literally just sucking the lifeblood out of you and pretending to give you something in return. So that's how you do it. You recognize that you're going to die. You recognize it and you embrace it and you realize how much of your actions are based off of the fear of death and the forgettance of death. The two together. If I'm afraid that what I'm going to do is going to kill me, if it's not like, like don't jump off an airplane or like, like not directly, but like some, like the fear of what is the fear of death? What is the, what's not even the fear of death? What's the fear of taking a risk? It's that no one's going to like it. I'm going to get rejected. I'm going to get kicked out of society. I'm going to get ostracized. I'm going to have to go live in the woods by myself and freeze, starve and die. That's the like root fear of why people don't ask someone out of why people don't publish their blog or start their podcast or leave their job to do the consulting or do the thing. That's it's truly, I believe that it's this, that fear cascade at the lowest point. It's a fear of death. And then on the flip side, to say it again, it's the forgettance that is coming anyway. So you might as well hit some fucking home runs and have some fun and high five some people and live a kick-ass life, right? Kiss girls on the mouth, like do all the things. with consent, do the the thing like, but you know what I mean? Like, that's why I want to shake people. But I had a visceral experience of dying over and over and over. And so it's in my system, like holding the hands of people who were dying. I literally got off, like left hospice, drove to the airport, got on a plane, got to Guatemala, walked into a room and was in there for the next month. So death was just everywhere. And thank goodness.
0: That was a long legend. answer
1: to a short question.
0: I, I love your long answers. <laughs> There's so many nuggets in there. I don't even know where to start unpacking them all. It's, oh yeah. I think everyone just needs to sort of soak that in for a minute. I had a, a really dear friend and a mentor of mine. Um, I said to her the sort of, shall we say, Instagram worthy quote that we see floating around about like, oh yeah, we're, we're all our own worst critics. And mm-hmm. I said that to her in conversation and she looked at me and she said, I'm not. Yeah. And I was like, Holy shit, there's a different reality. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was sort of this like readjustment in my, in my brain. And when I coach people around that now they I can see the same Holy shit moment go on in their eyes. And they're like, mm-hmm. Oh my God, that no, just because it's the societally accepted way of being, or we see it, you know, written in quotes for pop psychology, Instagram, bullshit. We accept it as normal. And Mm -hmm. how many other parts of our lives are we accepting as normal and accepting Mm -hmm. as this is the best we can do Mm -hmm. because we're so afraid to step outside of that, either because of our own judgment or because of the judgment of everybody that we've surrounded ourselves with. If Mm -hmm. you start making really big choices and really big moves, go in different directions you have to accept that not everyone's coming with you
1: Mm.
0: it it, that that's part of the acceptance if you're going to accept the journey you have to Mm -hmm. accept that not everybody's coming on the train alongside you you're Mm -hmm. going to have to be willing to let them go Mm -hmm. and that is one of the hardest parts that people struggle with because there's so much fear wrapped up in in that the abandonment the being alone Mm -hmm. like Mm-hmm. not wanting the stillness right because if they don't have somebody around to fill their consciousness all the time yeah. what are they left with all the right. deep scary thoughts
1: yeah i completely completely agree and would even add more intensity to it i'm saying almost no one's coming with you
0: that is and half true. of
1: the people who stay there will do everything they can to to pull you back into the conventionality right they're ter- when you leave a system it's a threat to the system The system has no choice, but to try to pull you back in. And you're in this, like, you know, in between two islands, just kind of floating in the middle of the sea, like not, you can't see the old one. You can't see the new one. There's this period of blah of malaise of depression of what have I done of, I don't want to go back, but I don't see the way forward of this is lonely and terrifying and hard. And it's, I don't, I don't know if you, you've probably never done jiu-jitsu, Have you? Have you ever I, done jiu-jitsu?
0: No, I actually haven't. And I would like to, I have done some okay. boxing, but I have not done jiu-jitsu. Good. I would like to
1: for the I'll come, first, I'll come down like, to
0: Colorado. You can teach me, <laughs> please. I would love to for
1: the first, like six, eight months of being in jiu-jitsu, You just get your ass kicked over and over. You get it kicked by everybody in the room, men, women, children, everybody beats you. And every time you beat, you get beat, it hurts physically and it hurts emotionally and it hurts your ego. And then like every once in a while, there's this nugget, which is like, I got beat less frequently than I did last week. (laughs) And that's a win, right?
0: That is absolutely the win. Then it's, I
1: made it through an entire three minute round and nobody beat me. That's another win. And then all of a sudden, after like a year, you beat somebody. And it's, it's f- people who get there are instantly addicted and, and they change their whole lives toward it. It's like surfing. The first time you get up, game over. Now you have to live by the coast.
0: It's so addicting. It's <laughs> so addictive, it's yes. so addictive.
1: And this, I view the entrepreneurial path, the consciousness path, the unconventional path, the uncivilized path, whatever you want to call it, as so similar that every fiber of your survival being is like, what are we doing? Why are we getting choked every 15 seconds for two hours, three times a week? This is terrible. This is the worst thing ever. So you have to actually have, like, you have to have a, a, not just a why. I don't want to Simon Sinek this. It's not just like, know your why, but you better fucking want it, right? You better fucking want it. My current partner has just left corporate America and is now out on her own, and is dealing with some of this, like, oh, this isn't as much fun as the fantasy. And I said to her two days ago, like, you better fucking want this. Because you're going to survive on crumbs of faith and these tiny little, tiny little specks of you're going to make it. Little pat on the butt from the universe in the form of an email that may come once a week. Or a conversation that happens once every two weeks where someone's like, yeah, this thing that you said really helped me. You're like, boom, that's my nugget. Someone DMs you and is like, wow, that was really helpful. Boom, that's your nugget. You make $7. Boom, that's your nugget. Seriously. It's like, you got to have that inner fortitude that says, I know why I'm here. I'm willing to go through this. I realize there's something bigger that's calling me. I have a team. I have a team inside. I've dealt with that inner critic. Like, I'm not going to beat myself up because the initiation. From conventional to unconventional is brutality. Like we don't talk about this, do we? We don't talk about what is it like to walk out of a system that is the collective. Like what is it like to leave all of that faux faux security? What is it like to leave the facade? It it truly feels like it must be the Matrix. Of hey, I I just give me the pill back. I want to. I know it's pretend flavor of steak, but I want to eat it. And so for people, for you guys listening to this, like grab your fucking hearts, like literally grab it and be like, I'm not leaving. You can throw me out of this club and I will crawl my way back in because you're going to have to do that over and over and over. And that's the spiritual path. path. That's the path of consciousness. It's the path of entrepreneurship. It's the path of unconventional uh, relationship. It's the path of intimacy. Like real intimacy, not the like hallmark intimacy where we just pretend everything's okay and then we fuck our neighbors without each other knowing or whatever it is that we're doing. It's th- all of that requires this sense of like at least a connection to my heart. And for guys, I'll say connection to your balls. So you can like, you have to get up and fucking do some stuff. For women to connection to that power and a faith that, okay, I'll take that 0.001% thing and I'm going to ride it.
0: All of this keeps coming back to like that, that relentless courage, like that Mm -hmm. relentless courage and being so grounded in the fact that you get to do this, you don't have to do this. And, and that's something I'll remind myself too. If I have to like record a module for a course or something, and I'm like, I'm like, no, no, you chose this. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You chose this. What is the alternative? Do you want the alternative more? No, then you can fucking record your module. <laughs> right, 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 right. <laughs> and we we have to, but we have to sometimes survive off of those crumbs, like mm-hmm. literal sometimes crumbs, it feels like, to mm-hmm. just keep going. Like, yeah, you get a single DM. You get like one single sale all month. And you're like, yes, mm-hmm. I've got mm-hmm. this. <laughs> one
1: in a row, right? And my old coach is yeah. like one in a row. You got one in a row. You're good. And it is that relentless courage over and over and over. And finding, I, I want to come back to like and having a team. Having people, because most people who leave, their their support system was the collective. Their support system was the conventional. And now they feel like they're completely out there on their own, which is why I think people in our space gravitate to each other so heavily and so instantly. Of Like, oh, you get me. I get yeah. it. You 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 get me. I can talk to you for five minutes and I know you get me. As opposed to my buddy, God bless him, who's been in the same law firm for 30 years, who's like... When are you going to get a job? <laughs> I know. Right? It's true.
0: I actually have a lot of difficulty at this point relating to people sometimes who are not entrepreneurs. And I have other entrepreneur friends who are like, yeah, but I don't want like everybody to be an entrepreneur. Like sometimes I don't want to talk business. I'm like, yeah, but a lot of time I don't talk business with them. I just, it's, it's just a different layer of thinking sometimes. And it's yeah. not that, you know, everybody in my circle has to, or is an entrepreneur, but I, I sure. do find it a, a certain degree of, of ease of relating when, when it's an entrepreneur, because we tend, we're a weird breed. <laughs> we're we're kind yeah. of cut from a slightly different cloth a little bit sometimes in some 100%. ways. I think it's
1: anybody on a path of expansion
0: mm-hmm.
1: and entrepreneurism is a beautiful, you're, you're going to go through it whether you want to or not, you're going to go through a path <laughs> of expansion. And that could be the spiritual path for people. That could be a physical path of, oh, you're a bodybuilder and this is how you're using it, but you're using it to Feel more and and have access to different information. Those are the people I'm so curious about: storytellers, poets, artists, entrepreneurs, meditators, tantra people, lover, like everybody who's going. Yeah, that doesn't really seem like it makes much sense, and I don't really feel attracted to the conventional. Or I did it. I played the game, and it, it there's a false promise at the end of it. The false promise is happiness. But I wasn't happy. Like, I checked all the boxes and I wasn't happy. I wasn't full. I wasn't allowed to fully express myself. I just keep going back to that. You know, I have on my shelf um, the Tao of Jeet Kune Do, which is Bruce Lee's book. And I remember reading it as a 14 year old. You're like, what is this guy talking about? Expression. <laughs> like, come on now. How do I kick people's asses?
0: That's all I want to get. That's the moment. real stuff. That's it. That's
1: it. And now at 45, going, Oh, he was a genius ahead of his time saying, everything you do is about personal expression. And anything that stunts or contracts that personal expression will eventually choke you.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And you'll either push that shit out sideways in very unhealthy ways, or you'll, you'll lie down and die, or you'll take that hand off your throat and go, no more. I don't care if I'm broke. I don't care if I'm alone. I don't care if I never X, Y, and Z again. I'm going to walk this path. I think we talked about um, alcohol beforehand. Yes. We can shift right into this is like anybody who's ever quit drinking. You are going to face everyone like that hand around your throat of like, okay, I will never, I will never. I remember when I quit drinking thinking I will never date again. I will never have sex again. I will never be invited to a party again. I will never laugh with a group of guys again. Uh, I'm probably not going to be that creative. And a whole bunch of other shit that the radical opposite was true. A little bit of a transition, but just think if we take that as w- what is one of the most archetypal actions of conventionality, to me, it's drinking. And I, I don't give a fuck if people drink or not. And I'm not sober per se. I just quit drinking. I was like, one day I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. Mm-hmm. It literally explain it to me. Tell me what, what the benefit is. And let's look at the collective. Let's look at DUIs. Let's look at sexual assault. Let's look at domestic violence. Let's look at liver cancer. Let's look at all the things. And then let's put the positives next to it. What do we get out of this? How many of your best moments of your life were eight drinks deep? Okay, cool. So why is it so scary to leave? Because what am I going to do with my, what are my friends going to say? Who's going to have sex with me? where will I belong is really the, the the root of the question. Yeah. So we can just take that as like a very clear, distinct example. I've run programs now I'm of, I used to run this program with Courtney McNabb called uh, intoxicate. And it was like a six week don't drink. And we would ask people up front, like, what is your biggest fear? Like, what is, what's stopping you from joining the program now that you've joined the program? What are you terrified of? What am I going to tell my friends?
0: Yeah. And it, and it's real because I, I don't drink much at all. I haven't for a long time. In fact, <laughs> you're going to laugh. <laughs> I know that I happen to know just from like background research on you that you stopped drinking the day your wife left. Correct. Okay. I, I had, I was a very heavy drinker, very, very heavy drinker in university. Um, I don't, I can't remember what it is in like a regular size of 40 ounce, uh, 40% alcohol, like a bottle of vodka or something is. What is that like a liter or something for you guys? It's a,
1: I get what you mean. Like a, a salt know, like the, this, right? Like, yeah, 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 yeah.
0: So it, it's like 26 ounces or two, No, it's yeah, 26 ounces yeah. here. So, and then I can't remember what the what the Imperial conversion is. I'm Canadian for anyone who's listening to this and doesn't understand what I'm talking about. <laughs> and it's a lot of booze. <laughs> it's a lot of booze. And I yeah. used to drink one of those per night of 40% alcohol in university. And wow. I, I'm I'm also like this big for anyone who can't yeah, actually yeah, see just me. Like, I'm I'm thin. Yeah. yeah. And especially back then, I didn't have like even the muscle that I have now, but I took pride in the fact that I could outdrink any male who challenged me. <laughs> like mm. I will still be standing at the end of this Great, contest. Yeah. And most of the time I was, I would often yeah. be blackout drunk, but I mm. I was still standing. And it got to the point where I just got tired of it mm. and I didn't like who I became when I drank. And mm. then the biggest indication. The, the biggest sort of factor that changed why I stopped drinking almost entirely and I still drink occasionally, but just not much at all. Like one, two drinks tops and not often was when I started dating the guy that I got into a relationship with for nine years, I, mm-hmm. wanted, I, I, I wanted to protect that relationship so much because I thought that was like the thing. Mm-hmm. I was so worried that I would do something stupid if I got drunk that I mostly stopped drinking because of that. And I'd never cheated on a partner before or anything like that. But I was just like, I do dumb shit when I'm drunk and I don't want to put that at risk. The irony is not last of me. What happened to that relationship? <laughs> but, and it's funny too, because I came up with a podcast episode about not drinking a week before I found out about his infidelity. Oh <laughs> and I, God. later on, I have podcast listeners coming back to me and they're like, wait, but, but you did that episode. I'm like, I know, I know. I know, <laughs>
1: I know. I'm leaving it up, yeah.
0: <laughs> fine, it's fine. Um, but yeah, and, and one of the big things is that I'm still shocked that as an adult, the peer pressure that mm. happens, if, if I don't really have a drink, it's like other people then feel guilty for mm. their drinking. And I'm like, that's the part you need to be concerned about, not whether or not I'm drinking. If you are right. so concerned that I'm not drinking to make you feel better, that's yeah. the real issue that you need to put under the microscope.
1: It's so powerful. Like this is, it's such a clear example of the power of the collective. Yes. Of it is the only, I know it's a cliche, but it is the only drug we have to explain why we don't do. Right. Like, yeah. I've never been to a party where they're like, Hey, do you want to do heroin? I'm like, No, <laughs> it's not my thing. And they're like, Really? We don't trust God. anybody who doesn't do heroin.
0: <laughs> yes. But I've it's heard
1: like, that about alcohol. crazy
0: that people right? will say that. They're like, I don't yeah. trust people that won't drink with me. I'm like, I don't trust people who can't like, own their own alcohol intake. Like-
1: <laughs> sure. but So just to, just to say, see it, like that's how powerful it is. There's a machine behind it. There's a marketing machine behind it. There's, but there's also, how does the collective feel? Well, I feel okay in the world when I do this. And so if you're going to take that away from me, then you're taking away my feeling of being okay in the world. This is how I'm okay interacting. This is how I deal with my anxiety. This is how it's okay for me to go on a date. This is how I'm, I'm okay having intimacy with someone. This is how it's okay for me to have sex with someone. This is why I'm still in my marriage. I can handle him or I can handle her because I drink. And so really that's what we're threatening simply by providing a counterexample. I don't go proselytize That I don't drink. It's, it's like very tiny, tiny, tiny part of my story and my platform mostly because I don't even think about it anymore because the other paradigm is now I'm around people who aren't sober, but just don't drink. And so it's this weird collective of like, oh, we all kind of found each other. And if you ask people, why did you stop? It really is like, well, I, I just wanted to be more present. I just wanted to be clearer. I wanted like Mark Groves, I said, like, I wanted to be more sober. Mm-hmm. Huh? Okay, so huh, this is really interesting. I thought I'd be alone. I thought I would be single, I thought I would be celibate, I thought I'd be, et cetera. And now that group, man, we do some really interesting things on weekends other than go sitting in a bar drinking, which I have, again, if that's your thing, God bless you, keep doing it. But if you're if it's not, that is a whole nother journey to to walk down, like entrepreneurism, like, the spiritual path, like whatever we want to say. Sobriety is a wild ride because it's, and it's again, another cliche, but like, uh, I remember, I can't remember the guy's name. He's a famous actor. He's just a train wreck, but his line was sober stands for son of a bitch. Everything's real. Oh, right.
0: Yeah. That's, yeah. that's, he was the guy in, um,
1: <laughs> uh, uh, what's the Keanu Reeves movie where he was a surfer and like the, uh, you know, and the, the, Bank robber Bodie. Um,
0: oh shit! I'm terrible at this game. Uh,
1: anyway, he, he <laughs> the blonde okay. cop. anyone who's trying okay. to help, help me, but 50 people are yelling at their phones. I right know.
0: Now. I'll, I'll look it like, up. And point I'll Break. It point Break. Notes. Point Break.
1: I can't believe <laughs> I forgot one of the most iconic movies in all of history. Yeah, and point, Whoever Gary Busey. That's it. Gary Busey. Oh,
0: yours on fire it's, now. We got yeah, it. Yeah, okay. it's, it's his line,
1: right? And, and but I remember hearing that and be like, oh, most of us don't want to deal with what's real. And I don't want, I didn't want to deal with what's real in my marriage on weekends, on you know Thursday nights when I was alone, or I didn't want to deal with my pain. I didn't want to deal with loneliness. I didn't want to deal with trauma. I didn't want to deal with what's real. And the collective doesn't want to admit that if we just look outside our windows, go like, that's fucked up. A lot of this whole system is fucked up. What we're doing to the planet is fucked up. What we're doing to women is fucked up. What we're okay with as far as exploitation of children, on some level we're okay with it because it still happens, is fucked up. And so this is how we have to deal with being human in a civilized world, in a conventional world. We need these things, which is why here in Denver, when the um, lockdowns happened, liquor stores were closed for about three hours. And there were riots. And so then suddenly the mayor or whoever was like, hey, guess what? We made a mistake in that last little announcement. Liquor stores are now essential businesses. We got to keep the masses lubricated. We have to keep them a little bit numb. We, that's, and, and on some level, I get it. Because there were fucking riots. Because there were people breaking in. Because there were people, not just addicts not just the people who are going to wake up tomorrow in a hospital if they don't have a drink, but the people like the regular people who go, Whoa, 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 Whoa. I just need to take the edge off my life every day because if I dealt with what's real, it would be too much.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Trevor, this has just been so powerful. I don't, I don't want to completely go over because we always go over time. So thank you for all Truly. of this today. How can people find you? How can, and how can we support you? What can we do to support you for anyone? I
1: love that question. Thank you so much for asking it. You can find me on Instagram at Traver Boehm, T-R-A-V-E-R-B-O-E-H-M, or at my website, manuncivilized.com. You can support me by talking to men, talking to men and just sharing my work and saying, I get asked this question all the time. I'm like, how do I share your work without upsetting a guy or making him think that there's something, quote, wrong with him? Like, one, there probably is. (laughs) Two, just mention, like, hey, I heard this podcast. Hey, I saw this book. Hey, I think this thing may interest you. Because my mission, despite all the things we just talked about, about consciousness, about truth, about reality, is to shift the culture of men. I want to change the options that men have so that the behavior that they have is significantly less damaging. And I am one. So I know what it's like to be a traumatizer. I know what it's like to be a predator. I know what it's like to be addicted. And I know what it's like to not feel like I have options other than that. And so really, anybody listening, please send men to me. The work that's happening with these men is remarkable. And I'm not taking credit. It's like, I have a team of guys doing this. The guys just supporting each other are doing this. It is just this fantastic thing to watch of guys coming. I have this group called the uncivilized nation and we have guys that will bring things forward. That will literally say like last night I found out my partner cheated last night. I found out that this happened and I don't know what to do. And they'll they'll be instantly surrounded by other guys who say, hey, I've been there. So before you pick up a bottle, before you punch someone, before you pick up a gun, let me call you. And that, I just got chills again. So did I. How many of those, how many men would be different? How much behavior would be different? How many women and children and the earth would be untraumatized if one of those men who was doing all of that shit just had someone around him to go, hey, man. That sounds really fucking hard, brutally hard. Did you know I went through that a couple years ago? Here's how I got through it. Oh, by the way, the five of us are going to check in with you every day for the next couple of weeks because we love you and we support you. And you, you've never heard that before. You've never had support. You thought you had to do this all on your own. Cool. Well, we're going to break that up. Now, come to us. Come to us with your fear, with your pain, with your hurt, and come to us with your celebration. Let us celebrate when you do things. And it's we have this, uh, go on a tiny another soapbox, we have this bipolar relationship with men in this country, where because so or in the West, well, all over the world, because so many of us are the predators, we forget that those people actually need help. And so we have this class, all men, predators, all men, bad, all men, evil, because we do the lion's share of the bad shit. So then we can't look at them with compassion. We don't want to solve the problem because solving the problem means we have to get over our idea of vengeance or idea of eye for an eye, or you know what? Fuck them. They hurt me. And so I want to change that for you, for your future kids, for, for, for everybody on the planet that's going, God, a guy, a guy abused me, a guy like subjugated me. The, the collective masculine is traumatizing. It's, it's fucking awful at times, but it is so deeply wounded. And even men won't recognize it. So it's just like, I know I just rattled off a lot. I want to create a paradigm in which everybody can actually live on this planet without having to hurt each other. And my group, because they look like me, they smell like me, and I'm bigger and fucking faster than a lot of them. So they listen to me, are men. So send me your men.
0: I think I can personally vouch for that. Everybody send all of your men. (laughs) All the men need to go to Traver. I've, it's funny because, like, I've I've had uh, both some clients, male clients, and some male friends that I I sent your last episode to, and they're like, "This is really good." I'm like, "Yeah, I fucking know it is." I'm like, <laughs> I'm like "So go sign up for his for his man on civilized nation." Like, yeah. please go do that.
1: <laughs> yeah. Please, please, it's, yes, it, it's bigger than me. Right, it's not about me anymore. I'm actually at the point where I'm like slowly figuring out ways to not be engaged as heavily because i want to be out just spreading the word on it Mm -hmm. right and i see it and i wish you could see what happens to a guy the first time he feels support it's magic it's crazy and then what does he do that next monday and what does he not do
0: yeah that's the bigger question Like
1: that's the bigger question what is he not doing anymore yeah please send me your men
0: so fucking good trevor thank you make me cry again
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I didn't know this was coming.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Seriously, this is so good. Thank you so much. I I really appreciate you. My pleasure. (laughs) Be sure to tag me over on Instagram at Emily Goff Coach so that I can thank you in real time for listening and connect with you. We're back every Tuesday and Thursday with new episodes and I'm looking forward to growing with you.